0: Church, we're in the book of Romans this morning, and we're finishing up where we left off last week, which is the end of Romans chapter 1. And and, and what a great message from the Apostle Paul! Uh, What a great message the Lord has given to us in, in this book of Romans. It is the gospel. Romans is about the powerful gospel of God, it is the Bible in a nutshell. It is everything you need to know about salvation. It clears, it clarifies the Old Testament. It, it gives understanding to the New Testament. And what a blessing it is to be able to study this book of the Bible because I believe that it really has such tremendous potential to not just change our life, but to give us confidence about how to go share with others the good news of Jesus Christ. We've been talking about the fact that the good news can only be good news if we understand the bad news first. And last week we talked about the message about what is our problem. The reality is we all share the same problem, that without Christ we're hopelessly lost. Without Christ, what the Word of God teaches us, what the Word of God tells us is that because of ungodliness, because of unrighteousness, because we hear the truth of God. We know the truth of God, yet we try to suppress or push down the truth of God. The word of God tells us that we are under the wrath of God, that the wrath of God is being poured out upon humanity. And without Jesus Christ, he's going to make the case a little bit later on in chapter 3 that we are all, all of us, under the condemnation of God. Unless we've received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. So as we get into this this morning, I want us to be challenged today, challenged to understand how desperately we need the gospel, but not just us, how desperately the world needs the gospel. When we talk about this issue of what is our problem, we left off last week in in the verses of Scripture in verse 20 and 21, where literally he went on to say that because we've seen in creation God. We have the knowledge of God. It's seen in creation. The creation glorifies Him. We talked about what we see in the telescopes and the microscopes and what we see in the world around us. It declares that there is a God who is powerful, a God who is almighty, a God who cares, who loves, and it's evident in creation. It's been revealed to us. But the Bible also says that it's been revealed in us. That there isn't a person born in this life, in this world, that doesn't have a sense of conviction when it comes to sin. That no matter where you go in the world, there are things that are universal morally because we have a God who put in us an understanding of who he is, of his presence, of right, of wrong. There is a moral goodness that we know exists out there and we see how we fall short of that moral goodness. All of us know what shame, what guilt looks like, what it feels like. And yet we still suppress God, the knowledge of God. And in verse 20 and 21, what I was going to share last week was simply that because of that, we're without excuse. Now, let me begin in 24, and we'll go through the rest of these notes and and what I have for you to finish up this sermon. But in verse 24, this is where we left off last week. It says, therefore, God gave them over. Now, you might want to underline gave them over. And the lusts of their hearts to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is Unnatural. In the same way, also men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts, receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to the depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. Being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, and unmerciful. And although they knew the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, They not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. Some tough verses this morning. But folks, we have to accept the, tr- the truth, the tough, difficult passages of truth as much as any other part of the truth that is exhibited in the Scripture. Many of us would love to hang out in Philippians because it's such an encouraging book, but the reality is we need Romans chapter 1 if we're going to understand our need for salvation. What Romans chapter 1 tells us and what I want to focus on this morning are four things. And first of all, I want us to see that part of the problem that we have is that we are without excuse. We didn't get a hit on this much last week, but that's what verse 20 through 23 really says to us. It says that because all of us know the truth of what we dealt with last week, the Bible says we're without excuse. When it comes to standing before God, one day everyone will stand before him a sinner without Jesus Christ and will be rightly condemned. Literally, the Bible says that we are without excuse. Why? Well, we just said it because God has revealed himself to us. He's revealed himself in us. The Bible goes on and tells us that even though he revealed himself, we suppress the truth, and that's why we're under the judgment of God. And he says that's also why we are without excuse. Every person right now that doesn't have Jesus Christ stands under the judgment of God without excuse. Now, how can he say it's without excuse? Well, it is very simple. God has given us enough To condemn us. We know that he is. We know that he's good and kind. We know that he's moral. We know. Listen, we talked last week that it shows itself in just a few ways. Either we are atheists or agnostic, meaning we don't believe there's a God. Or or maybe we've chosen to try to say that, well, God exists, but he has nothing to do with us. He just wound us up and let us go. We don't have to give an account to him one day. There are others that are a little more religious. And what they've done is not say that he doesn't exist, not say that he's distant, but they say that he exists, but then they try to make him what they want him to be. We make an idol out of God. And we want a God we can control. We want a God that we can manipulate, that we want to accept the truths that we like and reject the truths that we don't like. And he says that every one of us have done it to the point that now we are without excuse before God. What that means is that if we don't get the gospel to the ends of the earth, people all over this world will die in their sins. Literally, go to the end in verse 32, what does it say? They are receiving to themselves what they know they deserve, death. And we're going to define death in a minute. It's not what you think. Why is it important that we take the gospel to Nova Scotia? Why is it important that we take the gospel to the Philippines? Why is it important that we take the gospel to the deepest, darkest places, regions in the world? Because there is no one that is alive right now that will not stand before the judgment of God. I used to be asked all the time as a pastor, Pastor, isn't it true that there are just some people that don't know the difference between wrong and right? What does the Bible say? It says they know, but they ignore it. They know, but they suppress it. You telling me there's a person alive that doesn't know that stealing's wrong in any culture, and yet they steal? That unkindness is wrong in any culture, yet they act unkindly over and over and over again. Is there anybody in every culture that doesn't understand lying that it's wrong? And yet we choose over and over. And the Bible says that we are without excuse and it makes the gospel so important. We have to go to the world because listen to me. If they don't hear about Jesus, they cannot be saved. All they have is God's wrath being poured out. Someone used to say to me, they always ask the question, well, what if we don't go? What if they never hear about Jesus? What's going to happen to them? Church, what's going to happen? They're going to die in their sins. Why? Because they knew the truth. Yet they suppressed it. They knew what was right, yet they did what was wrong. If ignorance could save people, I would change my strategy for how we could win the world. And see everyone saved, you know what it would be? Close the doors of this building. Never mention the name Jesus ever again. I mean, when you think about it, if ignorance could save you, we're almost doing a disservice to people when we get on a plane and go around the world and tell them about Jesus because now they're responsible for what they did with the Son of God. Now they're responsible not only for their sin, but the rejection of Christ, the Savior, who could save them from their sin. If ignorance could save, we're, we're foolish for the strategy that we have. But the reason we have the strategy we have is because it isn't our strategy. Whose is it? It's God's because what does God know? That unless they hear the gospel, unless someone goes and preaches to them, unless someone has the courage to leave what is comfortable to them to go around the world, to share with them the gospel truth, people will die in their sins because every person, according to the word of God, is without excuse. And if you're just hoping, That somewhere out there, there are people that just aren't guilty. Because they don't know the Bible. They don't know the truth. They were born Muslim. They were born Hindu. They were born atheist. They were born. You have to wrestle with what God's word says. Let it motivate you. That they are without excuse. And because they're without excuse. (laughs) That leads us to the second thing. That means that all of us that are without excuse, we're facing God's judgment. So the people that are facing God's judgment, you know what they're actually facing? They're facing death, but it's not what you're thinking. Because in reality, how many of us die? Yeah, last time I looked, it's a hundred percent. One to one ratio, right? We all if we were born, we're going to what? We're going to die. So it has to mean more than just physical death. What the Bible means when it says that we are getting death, understand that death It's synonymous with a word that you know, but you don't always equate the two. It's separation. Death means separation. If you've ever had a loved one, let's say you knew they were a believer in Jesus Christ. They followed Christ. You were as confident as anything in the world that they knew, loved, followed, worshipped, obeyed, served Jesus Christ, and that by faith they trusted in him for their salvation. That person can die. Let's say they had cancer. They were struggling. And even though in your heart you say, they're in a better place, right? They're with Jesus. They've died, and, and, and yet at least they're not struggling with cancer. They're healed. They're whole. We, we know all of those things, but yet we go to a funeral, and what do we still do? We cry and we weep. Why do we do that if we know the other to be true? Because the cruelest part of death is that it really is a separation. It means I can't hold them anymore. It means I can't talk to them anymore. I don't get to hear their encouragement. I I don't get to sense and understand their love in the way that I could if they were right there telling me and saying it to me. And now death has taken them from me. And there is this separation that just crushes us. That's what Jesus means. That's what God meant when he said, That the wage of sin is death, that what it costs you is separation from the God who loves you, who created you, who has purposed things for you. And when you think about who God is, he is the source of life. If you are cut off and separated from God, understand that means you are separated from the very source of life. When the Bible says that God is love and you, because of sin, become separated from him you start to accept things that you call love that aren't love at all because you know you have this desperate need for love, but you're cut off from the one who is love. Does that make sense? The one who is peace. You look for peace all over the world, but because you're separated from God, the only real source of peace is God himself. And without him, you look and you search in vain. And that's death. And that's hell. Even more than the fire and all the things that we use to describe hell, understand that hell is hell because the only relationship you have with God there is where forever his wrath is poured out on you. Some people say, well, God is an hell. No, listen, God is everywhere. Right? He's omnipresent, right? What does that mean? He's everywhere. Don't think that that there's no concept or understanding of God in hell. No, the reality is you have full understanding of who he was and who he is, but you rejected him, and now you don't know him as Savior. You don't know him as King. You don't know him as Lord in the sense that you have this loving relationship with him. now all you know is his judgment when you could have his blessing. that makes the judgment of God look different. You're thinking the judgment of God is a lightning bolt. You're just going to fall over dead one day. Without Christ, we're dying every day and we're living a hell and a death (laughs) and we're breathing. Anybody ever been there? Remember what it was like without Christ? It means spiritual death, separation from God. And because of that separation from God that even exists in this life, I want you to understand that he talks about in verse 24 and following the first wave of God's judgment. What is the first wave? How do we begin to feel God's judgment? Again, thank God he doesn't just hit us with lightning bolts or we'd all just be dead and we'd have no hope. But you know what the Bible says? That his first wave of judgment is, with people it's very subtle and most of us don't even realize he's done it he gives us what we ask for most of you never thought of God God's judgment that way that's sometimes what God does to get your attention what God does to try to help you see how desperately You are in need of him. How desperately wicked you are in your own heart. All of us without him. How much sin is in there? Sometimes the way that he judges us, and I think the way that he judges us first is exactly what it talks about in verse 24. It says that he gives us over. He gives us what we ask for. That if we don't want to accept God's truth, then he'll say, fine. Then why don't you live out what you think is truth and see how that works? you don't believe me, then what do you do in the Bible when you see the people of God wanting a king? Remember, God looked right at them and said, here is the truth, people. You don't need a king. Why? He said, because you have me. You don't need an army. Why? Because you have me. It doesn't matter what the other nations have. It doesn't matter what the other nations depend on. God was trying to say, I'm your God. You're my people. I will fight the battles for you. Let me be king. You don't need an earthly king. But guess what the people of God kept asking for? A king. And they suppressed the truth. And they started saying, look at everybody else. They got a king. We're not as strong because we don't have an army. And they just kept complaining and they just kept complaining. And they ju- what they were doing was they were saying to God, we know better than you what we need. Isn't that just the basis of most of our sin? My way's better. My thinking's better. My timing's better. God, I want to do what I want to do. And what we end up doing is we push God to the point where He literally just says, Okay. And that may seem subtle, but it's devastating. It's no small thing when he says, therefore, because they're suppressing and all these other things, he says, God gives them over to their own lusts of their hearts. To impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored. It says that basically they're not going to glorify me, so they're going to try to glorify themselves. And he says, then we're going to go ahead. I mean, basically, God just says in verse 24, I'm going to give them over to the lust. They have these passions, these desires. I keep telling them it's wrong. I keep sharing with them what the truth is, yet they keep desiring to do those things. And in essence, what we're doing is, and we don't realize it, that we're making a bad trade. If you ever had siblings, my older brother, he was the worst at this. He would take advantage of me, and he'd always make me make a bad trade. Aaron, you want this piece of gum? want that gum, yeah. How about you give me that $20 that you got in your birthday card, and I'll give you this piece of gum. Okay. And it was a sorry piece of gum that lasted about two minutes. And guess what I knew? I just made a bad trade. See, most of us, that's what we're doing in this life. We're making a series of bad trades. We're ignoring... God and we're choosing other things, we're we're choosing cheap substitutes. And it's destroying us. What are the results? Of his judgment being played out in human history? you see cuz we know we're without excuse and that we're facing God's judgment which is separation and he begins that judging by saying if you want it then have your own way if you're going to reject me then then fine choose the course that you're choosing how do we i mean and really i think if you'll stop and look this morning you'll see that over history and over time we are seeing the ramifications in our generation of America this very thing being worked out because we have become a culture that is a slave to our lusts, aren't we? We're a culture that what is described in these verses, it's exactly who we are and, and, and where we are. and We're seeing these results because what it says in this word this morning is that God has delivered us over to the lies that we tell ourselves. We've traded God's glory for cheap substitutes. We're all worshiping something, but for many of us, the things that we're worshiping, it's not God, it's things. It's not God, it's people, it's not God. And we can't figure out why our lives are so upside down. We say, well, I go to church and I go to Sunday school and I do this and I do that. Listen, you can do all those things and still every Monday through Saturday be substituting other things for the only thing that God can give you. You're looking for love, right, in all the wrong places. You're looking for hope in a person because they've become God to you. And you wouldn't say it and you don't even think of it in terms like that. But the truth is we put so much weight in relationships, we say I can't live without them, right? And they take on this godlike position in our life. It can be children, it can be a spouse, it can be a job. But you see, we begin to tell ourselves lies, and God delivers us over to it. One of the most simple lies that we tell is that God says, I'm all sufficient for you. That in me, you'll find everything that you need in life. The question is, do we believe that? Most of us don't live life that way. What we say and what we live honestly is, well, I need God plus. Is there anything in your life that if you lost, you would feel like life wasn't worth living? Come to grips with the fact that Jesus is enough. Doesn't mean it doesn't hurt. It doesn't mean that we don't suffer. But is all our hope found in the wrong thing? Are we careful to not lie to ourselves? It says that God delivered us over not only to the lies we tell ourselves, but He delivered us over to our unnatural sexual desires. What is so interesting in this text is the analogy and the example that he gives us about people being turned over to their nature and their own desires. He uses the example of homosexuality. And the reason that he uses the example of homosexuality is because he's saying at the core foundation of who we are, when you go back to the very beginning, the most simple thing that God told us in the garden that God declared was it said that he created all the animals, right? And all the trees and the clouds and the the mountains and he created everything. And then the crown of his creation was what? It was us. Created in the image of God and the word of God simply states plainly, plainly. There's no ambiguity, there's no debate, there's no argument. He said that when he created man, he created them both what? Male? Female? We think we live in a different age, and this is only our generation, folks. In Paul's generation, you know what he's saying? He's saying that we have so suppressed the truth that we can't even come an agreement on what is natural. We live in a culture that literally is trying to tell us that we can't say that there is a man and a woman, a male and a female. You can watch videos of interviews. where little, I watched one and I'm just scratching my head thinking, are you kidding me? Because literally somebody said, you know, well, you know, this is all this gender identity stuff. What if I said that I was a tiger? Would you have to uh, identify me and agree with me as my identity as a tiger? And you know what the person literally looked in the camera and said? Yes, I would call you Mr. Tiger. I'm thinking, where are we? How lost are we? That we can't come to agreement with God on the most basic part of our humanity that he made us in his image and he created us both male male. And female. And he says that literally, he instituted the next thing in Scripture is the home. He institutes marriage. He institutes that marriage is between what? One man, one woman, how long? For one lifetime. And he says, look what we've done. Look at what we've done. You see, it's about sexual sin, not just homosexuality. Now, folks, the one thing I don't want us to do as a church, I don't ever want us to minimize homosexuality. We want to just say, well, it's it's no different than any other sin. No, no, no. Listen, the penalty of it is no different than any other sin. But, folks, let's think for a minute. Don't different sins warrant a quicker reaction? When you got your kids, right, if your kid forgets to take out the trash, is that gonna get a different reaction than if they cuss at you? I right? One will get a what are you doing, the other will get a backhand probably, right? There's a lot of things my kids can do. I'm not going to lose my cool, but there are some things they can do that I'm absolutely going to lose my cool because of the seriousness of the nature of the sin, the sins of sexual impurity, homosexuality. But listen, before you pick on that, let me say, fornication, sex outside of marriage is just as desperately wicked and against God as homosexuality. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. No sin hits home closer than sexual sin. When you deal with the issue of homosexuality, how serious was it to God? He listed in the Old Testament a lot of sins. When he got to that one, you know what he said? He said, Israel, if you fall into that sin... He said, it's one of the reasons I'm coming in and destroying the Canaanite people. And don't think for a second that if you fall into the same sin of homosexuality, you know what God said? It's an abomination and I will destroy you in the same way I destroyed them. Let that sink in. In God's economy, sexual sin, be it adultery, bestiality, fornication homosexuality. Do you understand the gravity? Why? Because he says, I'm turning you over to not only your own lusts. But he turns around and says your own unnatural desires, because, folks, that's what these sexual sins are. He says they are against God. They are against nature. The very core Of what we're supposed to be and who we are supposed to be. And you wipe out the whole beginning of what God intended with family. What God intended with male and female. It's the very first instructions that we were given about marriage and about purity. And do you see why the agenda today is as aggressive in that area as it is? Because if you take that away, what do we have left? Nothing. No nation will stand. (laughs) When the family is broken down to that degree. Do you think that somehow God's judgment won't fall upon the United States? Do you think we're too mighty to fall? Do you think that I mean, are we so prideful that we think that we can continue to do things like abortion and allow things, all the stuff that we're seeing, the complete breakdown I mean, we are saying to God, life doesn't even matter when we take the lives of our children. You want to get God angry in the Old Testament? Try child sacrifice. And Folks, at the same time, does God want to forgive? What's the answer to that? Yes. Does he want to restore? What is the answer to that? Yes. But he wants us to see what is happening in our midst as a nation, as individuals, as families, as churches. We cannot continue to sit by and not find our voice with the truth. And folks, we have to ask ourselves, Where are we in this equation because not only does he say he delivers over to the lies that we want to tell ourselves, but he delivers us over to the unnatural sexual desires. But thirdly, this this hits all of us. That he delivers us over to a corrupt. The translation that I read to you says depraved mind. The best way to translate that is Worthless. When something is depraved, it's worthless. When something is... I mean, think about a computer that's been corrupted. What do you want to do with it? You just want to throw it away because it's corrupted. It's forgotten its purpose and its, its use, and it can't function anymore the way it was designed to function. And he says that that literally, if we keep ignoring him, if we keep rejecting him, if we keep suppressing the truth... It says that he will literally turn you over to a depraved mind, a worthless mind. And what comes out of a worthless mind? Well, you're going to recognize ourselves in here. Now, Some of them, you're going to want to gravitate to the ones that aren't us. I want you to gravitate to the ones that are us. He says, just as they did not, in verse 28, see fit to acknowledge God any longer, he gave them over to depraved mind to do things that are not proper. He says we are filled with unrighteousness, we're filled with wickedness, we're filled with greed, we're filled with evil, we're full of envy, murder, strife. Strife is just fighting. Just being at odds with one another, right? Deceit, malice, they're gossips. most of us in this room, we want to say, well, gossiping is not a big deal. Listen, it, to the Lord, it's a big deal. Slanderers? To the Lord, it's a big deal. Do you know that the basis for the word devil, Diablos, do you know what it actually is? Slander. Why? Because that's what the devil is. He's a liar, isn't he? He's full of deceit. He's the father of lies. Literally, we're, no, we're, we're, we're never more like him than when we gossip and slander people that God loves, that God died for, that God cares about, people made in his image when we think so low of them that we feel the necessity to tear them down at every turn. And you see, we want to say, well, it's it's no big deal. It's just a little bit of gospel. It's a little bit of (laughs) slang. No, it's so much more. Has greed got a hold of you? Has malice, has deceit? He goes on and it even starts to take its effect with spiritually and with with God and with our families. He says they're slanderers, but he says they're haters of God. They're insolent. They're arrogant. They're boastful. They're inventors of evil. They're disobedient to parents. They don't understand. They're untrustworthy. They're unloving. They're unmerciful. You see, most of that is stuff that's lived out in our relationship between God and the people around us. I want you to think for a second. Do you have the mind of Christ or a depraved mind? Do you have the fruit of the spirit or the fruit of the flesh? If you go to over to Galatians five, you'll see a similar listing. And he says we have to look in the mirror and take an account of our lives And ask ourselves the question, we are people who have received mercy. Therefore, we should be people that what? That give mercy. How can we be unloving when we have received the love of Jesus Christ? And it's been poured out on us. How can we not pour it out? even to the extent of our enemies, much less our family and friends. And there are so many that may sit in the midst of churches, in the shadows of steeples, and yet they can be the most unloving, unmerciful, greedy, selfish people. You know what we found out? This is interesting. I don't know. Person X was going out and looking about church planting. Obviously, as they've begun raising money for church planting, one of the hardest things is you've got to go to people, right? And you've got to go to churches, and you've got to go to individuals, and you've got to share and cast the vision and, and hope that people will come on board and support this ministry because starting from scratch can be a very difficult thing. Most church planters that I talked to, and I talked to one here recently, you know what was amazing? I said, how has it been going raising money for the plants? And what they said was, well, you know, this family member of mine I asked them, could I talk with some of their friends? Because I know many of them are businessmen and Christian men, godly men, that probably would want to give to something like a church plant. And, you know, dad, I know you've got other friends and, and that may want to give. And the dad basically said, I wouldn't even talk to these people because they're just lost. They they don't know the, they're not going to give anything. And you can try with these other friends that are believers. You know what the crazy thing that happened? Every believer that we talk to, guess what? Guess who are the ones that gave generously? Now, isn't something wrong with that? (laughs) But I've seen it in the deaths of family members. I've been to houses where literally they'll say, you know, the house is full of people who are graciously serving, loving, pouring into this family. And, And what is crazy is how many times I walk in and sometimes the most gracious, loving, compassionate People that are giving the most of their time, they do it without even a relationship with the Lord. And sometimes I sit back and I wonder. Where are God's people? I'll be honest, sometimes gangs get it better than the church gets it. Let that sink in a second. Sometimes gangs get it better than the church gets it. Why? Because even though we claim one thing we can suppress when Jesus says, you know what, bear each other's burdens, encourage one another, that we have an obligation to the orphan, to the widow. We have an obligation to put others before ourselves. Those are great things that we love to teach. Are they things that we love to put into practice in our lives or do we suppress it and find ourselves greedy, find ourselves unloving, unmerciful? Sometimes you will find some of the most unforgiving people, not outside the church, but inside. Just listen sometimes. I can't tell you how much I hate them. I hope they never come back. It's not just something we have to look out there. We've got to look in the mirror today. We've got to be sure that we haven't found ourselves in a place where God is turning us over to the desires of our calloused heart. Because that's a tough place to be. And I think if you look at our culture, you can see we are where we are because God has done exactly what he described right here. He turned us over to the lusts of our hearts. He turned us over to unnatural desires, sexual desires, and he turned us over and gave us over to corrupt minds. can't help but notice what verse 32 says. And all the while they knew the ordinance of God. What does that mean? What is an ordinance? What is it? It's like a rule, right? It's the law. It's another word for the law. The law, the ordinances, the rules that God gave us. It says, even though we know what's right, we know the rule, we know the law, we know what God has spoken, that's what he's saying. although they knew the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things, what are they worthy of? Death, separation. He says, but they not only do the same thing. So it says, even recognizing that it's wrong, they blow right by it. And not only do they do it, They applaud those that also do it. Folks, That there's no greater description for the culture that we live in today. We call wrong right and right wrong. And not only do we have to accept those statements, they expect us to what? Applaud. And you know what? There are many churches that they are happy to do what? watching the news on the Methodist Church? That whole denomination's about to split wide open over the issue of sexual impurity and homosexuality. And folks, it could just as easy happen to us. The more pressure they put on us, you realize they're going to probably try to pass laws that will say you cannot speak against homosexuality. If you do, We'll start with, we're going to take away your tax exemption. But if you think that's where it's going to stop, you're not paying attention. And folks, we have to get to the place where how do we deal with a culture that is at this point? And that's what I want to close with. How do we respond? Well, number one, those of us that are in Christ that know the freedom from sin and we've come to Christ recognizing First and foremost, this was us. I love the way it says it because he's saying there, he uses they, okay? In verse 24, therefore God gave them. Understand the them is who? We like to say them is the other person. It's someone else. It's not me. No, them is us. Them is me. Without Christ, everything that's described is who? It's me. The first thing you need to do if you want to help people around you is you got to remember what it's like to be lost. you got to remember what it's like to be a slave to sin. That without Christ, what hope do you have of change? None. What hope do you have of salvation? None. There is no other way except in Christ. And you've got to remember what it's like to be lost, to have compassion for those that don't know the truth because until you have compassion, you're going to do it all wrong because you're going to go at them with nothing but hard, cold truth. And what does the Bible say that they need? We always need the balance of truth and love. And if you don't remember that I am them, And you'll just come at them with cold, hard truth. And they need you to love them. They need you to want a relationship with them. Everything about our salvation is going from separation to relationship. We should model for the world that they are loved and cared for. And the God who created them wants them to live in truth. And he wants to free them from sin. And he wants to see their life transformed. And we have to walk with them. And find a way to be kind. That's where we have messed up. We don't don't have an issue with the truth. We have an issue with being kind. Some of you, again, don't know how to handle Facebook. When it comes to politics, I I, I despise the thought that we got to go into the 2020 season again. You know why? Not because the world is going to act crazy. Because it's when the church starts acting crazy. You start reading posts from believers and you think, do you hate these people? Can you love these people? Can you speak the truth in a way that that challenges their thinking without belittling them? We've taken on this culture of we just berate people. When are we going to learn to have compassion again? And balance truth and love. If you win the argument but the soul is lost. It's not a win. If they couldn't see the truth because you can't love them and have compassion and show kindness, then have you really offered them the gospel? Don't you remember the Apostle Paul will later say in the book of Romans that it was God's kindness that led me to repentance? We must not cave on our position, but we must also act with compassion. I love the way Tim Keller said it. He said churches should feel more like a waiting room at a doctor's office and less like a waiting room at a job interview. People ought to be able to come into this place and not have to put on a facade or a show. They ought to be able to come in here just as they are saying I need Jesus. Will someone tell me the truth? Will someone help me and love me and meet me where I am and help me in this journey? It ought to look like an ER waiting room, not a waiting room for a job interview where they have to come in and tell us how they have it all together and they're afraid to be transparent and to show the hurt and the pain and the confusion because everybody's going to look down on them as if they're unworthy. Churches have got to learn to stand on truth, but act with compassion. And lastly, as Kevin comes, we, we must welcome the broken. You see, that's what I want for this church, is I want it to be a place where the broken are welcome, where the hurting are welcome. I want it to be said of this church the same thing that was said of Jesus I want them to question. I want us to be so concerned with the lost that they would look at us too and say, wow, you sit and eat with sinners? You spend time with prostitutes? That they would question our motives because we are so compassionate and kind and willing to reach out to the lost. Folks, we need the world to see again a church that looks like Jesus. that welcomes what we might consider the gravest sinner. I love the way Paul said it. He never forgot. He said, I'm the chief of sinners. He never pointed at everyone else and let them know what a sinner they were. He always pointed at himself and reminded them that he knows what it's like to be where they are. And with compassion, he ministered. And so, church, that's what I ask today. Are you willing to love a broken world that's confused, that's been turned over to its own desires and lusts? Are you willing to walk out into the byways with people of depraved minds that are struggling with all those things that we just read? Because you know that you have the cure. You know that you have hope. And you know that you have forgiveness and they can find the same life that you found when you were them. Never forget how far Jesus has brought you. And maybe you're here today and you need Christ. Maybe today, maybe the last few weeks, I hope it's been rough on some of us because What I believe is there's a lot of us in this room that we come to church, but we're not saved. We're just religious. We're not following Jesus. And I pray that your hearts are pricked and that you are convicted and someone today will have the courage to say, I need Jesus Christ. I need forgiveness. I need a transformed life. I know all about him, but he's never changed me. And today I want to be changed. And I need forgiveness and I need to be set free. If that's you, I pray that today you'll come. Little Darby, she came this morning, gave her life to Christ. What about you? Father, we thank you for your grace and mercy, your love that you show us. Lord, help us today to find hope in your word. Hope. In your promises and Lord, we just pray today that you would open up our eyes to see ourselves clearly. Lord, where are the places that we've rejected you, pushed you down? We've said to you, my way is better and greater and Lord, that we've turned away and we're without excuse. Lord, we're facing right judgment, Lord, that you, you turn us over so many times and you say if that's what you desire. Let's see how it works out, Lord. And you know that what it's going to do is it's going to bring us to a point of desperation where we realize that we're not satisfied and we're more restless than we've ever been. And Father, I pray that in that moment, you would turn us to yourself. And Lord, that we would seek forgiveness and place our faith in you and follow you with our whole hearts. If there is someone that needs to do that today, Lord, I pray that they would ask you to save them right where they are, and they would come out of that seat, and they would come and tell this church, just like Darby had the courage to do, such a young lady, but she had the courage to step out of that pew and to tell the church that she had received Christ and follow in baptism. God, do it again in this service. Lord, give us hearts of compassion, a love for the lost, and a courage to speak the truth in love in Jesus.